Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. On the morning of May 7, 2021, an employee of the Colonial Pipeline found a ransom note on a control room computer. A cyber attack from a criminal hacker group had locked the Colonial Pipeline company out of their own system, forcing them to suspend operation of the largest oil and gas pipeline in the United States for six days. It was only after Colonial Pipeline paid the hacker group roughly $4.4 million in Bitcoin that they regained access to their systems. Cyber attacks like these have only become more common and more high profile in recent years. There was the SolarWinds supply chain attack in 2020, the Microsoft Exchange server breach this year. In my neck of the woods, the Washington, D.C. Police Department experienced a ransomware attack in April. But whereas these attacks primarily involved data theft, the Colonial Pipeline attack represented something different, the disabling of critical infrastructure. The effects of the attack were almost immediately felt, with news of the shutdown causing a run on gasoline that drove prices to a six-year high and left thousands of gas stations without fuel. Unfortunately, this probably won't be the last time U.S. infrastructure is targeted by cyber attack, and we need to be prepared. I'm Colin Larson, and joining me today on The Buzz with ACT-IAC to talk more about this is Sean McBride. Sean is the Industrial Cybersecurity Engineering Technology Coordinator at the Idaho State University Energy Systems Technology Education Center, where he runs the nation's only two-year hands-on degree to specialize in defending industrial facilities from cyber attacks and incidents. Sean, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here, Colin. So, to get started, and this may be sort of obvious, but why was the Colonial Pipeline attack important or unique? Well, I think there are a couple of aspects here. One is that while we've seen events and incidents occur in industrial facilities in other parts of the world, this is the first time that something has happened that had a significant impact that most kind of U.S. citizens were aware of because they could no longer get gasoline. And so I think that's kind of a turning point in general threat awareness around industrial environments. So obviously, you know, the average person, when they're thinking about a cyber attack, they're thinking about passwords being stolen, access, that kind of thing. So how exactly are infrastructure like the Colonial Pipeline, how are these things vulnerable to cyber attack? So if we take a, if we take a big step back, we've got to realize that, number one, information technology, if you will, and it's a, it's a broad term, kind of be misconstrued. But when we're talking about communicating between humans or communicating between devices, of course, we're normally talking about electrons or light uh, flowing down a wire or through the air. And so there's certain similarity from that perspective. What we often don't think about is that in information system, we're talking about the data. And in a industrial control system, we're talking about the physics, right? Temperature, pressure, level flow. And yes, it's information. But it doesn't just represent thoughts. It represents the physical, real world. And so when we look at the vulnerabilities that exist and why these things are vulnerable, we can trace that back to the invention, if you will, of these industrial control systems and the core component, which is the programmable logic controllers. And so when these things were first invented in the United States, we traced their invention back to the late 
1960s. And one of the individuals, Dick Morley, who is credited with being kind of the American father of the programmable logic controller, he was averse um, almost to a point of fanaticism that his programmable logic controller was not a computer. And so at this point, like, and, and, and the rumors are that if the word, you know, computer was written on a blackboard in relation to his device, he would erase it or he'd tear up paper that called it a computer. So at that moment, this industrial control system set off on its own path that was different from computers. And the networks that we kind of take for granted today didn't exist at that time, right? The internet was not a thing. And so when we talk about the root of the vulnerability, it goes back to when these things were first invented. Cybersecurity was not on anyone's mind. And if you trace back the development of information assurance, which is kind of the previous name for cybersecurity, and look at those founding documents, right? The CIA triad, there is very little evidence that the folks coming up with those paradigms were ever thinking about the physical world. And if they did, they kind of assumed that their paradigms would account for or cover adequately the physical aspects of those systems. And I think that's just not the case. You've got this middle ground where it's not just the cyber stuff that has to get taught to the control systems people. It's engineering and safety. And it's not just the control system stuff, temperature, pressure, level flow that has to get taught to the cyber people. It's resilience and safety and functionality. And so you've got this middle ground. And I think that's where some of these core vulnerabilities have emerged from. And as a result, you may have a technician in the field or an engineer who is hooking up a flow meter or is making his life easier by adding remote connectivity. And he hasn't thought through the risk and maybe the policies, procedures, and approaches that, that we would hope have already existed in these organizations simply don't exist yet because there have been two disparate groups. So that's kind of my answer for the deep reason that these systems have these kinds of vulnerabilities. So it sounds like when, as you said, these logic systems for infrastructure were being developed, they almost went on a different track than internet infrastructure and, and more traditional computing. Track. Yeah. So when did people first start to realize that, okay, yes, these are still computers that are vulnerable. I mean, when, sure. did, when did awareness of this start to start to Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so in my previous career, of course, as an intelligence analyst, I've tried to answer this to a certain degree. And so I went back and said, what's the first hacker presentation that we can identify for someone? And typically, this is how things, at least in my experience, things go, right? Someone, a curious individual, will come up with an idea or a question and begin to research. And then at some point, they may want to talk about their research. So I looked through kind of hacker presentations to find out when's the first time that a, you know, quote hacker was looking for this stuff. And I traced, traced it back to a presentation in 2003 uh, at a uh, BrewCon conference in the United Kingdom when someone presented, and I might get the title kind of wrong here, but the idea was how secure is a glass of water and looking at the control systems at a water provisioning system. So that's when I think things started to come to kind of a, tracing it back to a, to a beginning point for when folks started thinking about this. Shortly thereafter, like the 2005 timeframe, the U.S. Department of Energy had stood up its national state of testbed 
initiative, which involved several national laboratories, and they were bringing in control systems from various vendors and doing tests on them to discover vulnerabilities or weaknesses. Even given that, from a, a consumer of the news, an outsider's perspective, it, it kind of seems like we're a little behind the curve here in terms of cybersecurity and particularly cybersecurity with our infrastructure. So what happened? Why? Yeah, why? So if you go back to that original discussion of, hey, these things had two emerging, two divergent tracks, if you will, and you've got this adoption, right? This digital age where, hey, it's, it's common for me as a consumer to be able to pick up my phone and answer my doorbell, right? Or to be unlocking my car, um, at least from a key fob. But we're used to interacting with physical, you know, the physical world with a digital uh, approach. And so this is, this technological wave, if you will, is sweeping over everything, right? Like we can joke and say, well, one day your seat, you know, you are sitting here <laughs> and one day your seat's gonna have an IP address, right? It's gonna tell you how much you weigh and that's what's happening. And so you've got these control systems that have been developed by engineers who never had a cybersecurity course but they recognize they're getting pressure. They're being asked by their managers to connect these things for good reasons, right? I mean, let's I look back at like the San Bruno uh, explosion. I think it's 2012 um, where you have a pipeline running beneath the uh, San Bruno in California and there happens to be a faulty well. Now we could, we could talk about this in greater detail. Let me just summarize. So fault over pressure. Uh, there's, a, there's a disruption to a signal. And the computer system reads that as pressure um, is low and it needs to ramp up the pressure with compressors. Now, the pressure was not low. It was a, a faulty, we lost signal, and that was the reading. So the compressor pumps up the pressure, the valve fails open, essentially, and there's a faulty weld in the pipeline, pipeline blows. And you've got this massive fireball hundreds of feet into the air that rages for like an hour. So the... National Transportation Safety Board does an analysis and they find a, a bunch of things. But one of the recommendations is you need to install remotely controllable valves on your pipeline because that's going to increase our safety. So that's an example of the pressure that's being brought to bear to connect these systems. And that's like an actual control example. But we get lots of examples where it's just we're going to cause a connection that's really data oriented. So we're talking about a pipeline and we're going to be sending down different octanes of gasoline down the same pipeline. So you've got these batches going down and you've got, you know, 91, 87, 85, whatever that is. And you've got to be able to communicate with the receiving entity or um, location, what was sent and when. And that's just data. That's not control. But if that data is no longer available, then you're going to be in a mess to figure out how much is supposed to go where, when. So there's an example of where this is really an information-oriented attack that is possible and has high consequence because it's not a, it's not a control-oriented attack. It's an information-oriented attack that has the same uh, sort of consequence. So um, I think those are the pressures, back to your original question, those are the pressures that are causing us to connect these real-world systems to the internet or to networks is probably a better way of saying that. But there's obviously a trade-off there as, you know, I think 
I heard someone say once, the safest server is one that's locked in a box with no connections to anything. <laughs> it's not serving anyone. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it seems like for you know safety purposes, for accessibility purposes, this interconnectedness of our infrastructure is going to be necessary in the future moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, we, yeah. we have a need to really infuse, and I like to think about it, to infuse cybersecurity capabilities into engineering professions. And right now, I think we make lots of, and again, I'm coming at this from an educator's perspective, we are creating cybersecurity experts, but are they expert in the things that need to be secured? I think there's an important distinction. We talk about centers of academic excellence. That's great, but what about a center of engineering excellence? Those are the ideas that I think we've got to wrap together as we look to the future. So it sounds like that's the sort of thing that you all are doing at your program at Idaho State University. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So what's, this is kind of, kind of cool. So here at ISU, we're located in, in Pocatello, Idaho. So we are close proximity to the Idaho National Laboratory, where over the past uh, decade or more, they've specialized in these industrial control systems and how to secure them. So that's kind of one thing that gave impetus to the rise of the industrial cybersecurity program here in Pocatello. The second thing is we are part of an engineering technology school, so a college of technology that's embedded inside of an academic university. So that makes us kind of unique in many ways. Now, we've had a electronics program that dates back to like 1941. So a lot of history there in terms of electronics and in about 2007, the industrial application split off from the electronics program. We started a center called Aztec. And Aztec does engineering technology, so mechanical engineering technology, electrical engineering technology, instrumentation, and nuclear operations. All right. So in about 2013, when the cybersecurity world started to, to heat up a bit, you know, Stuxnet happens in 2009, goes live in 2000, um, is recognized in 2010. But there's some good attention being placed on this industrial control cybersecurity space. Idaho State went to our State Board of Education and said, hey, can we stand up this cyber physical security program? And they said, no, um, the time wasn't right or in the, in the State Board's mind, there wasn't the need. 2015 rolls around, essentially resubmit the exact same uh, proposal and it's accepted. And so what we decided to do, and that's when I, I joined just after 2015, um, I'd been asked to come and teach a, a course one night a week, right? When I was at FireEye and it was cool. I drive down from Idaho Falls and I walked into their laboratories and you've got PLCs controlling pumps. You've got remote terminal units and protective relays. And it was all sorts of industrial equipment. And I'm going, this is really cool. These are the folks that we need to educate to take us into this new world of cyber physical systems, computers controlling various aspects of our lives, right? So essentially what we decided to do is say, hey, we'll take these other graduates, mechanical, electrical, instrumentation, nuclear, and we're gonna give them a year of cybersecurity related to these industrial environments. So they're going to learn things like how to segment a network, how to configure a firewall. And maybe more importantly, we're going to encourage them to think through what physical fail-safes would take risk entirely off the table. So if there were a hack, 
it would be physically impossible to cause a, a disaster. So those are the approaches that we're trying to teach our students. And I'm excited about it because that's what we need more of. We're going to hit these students. We're going to teach them at the moment when they're starting their career. We're not going to wait till they're out there and have an idea of what's of what needs to be done and then try to kind of re reinforce or, or bolt something on. We want them to think about this holistically from the beginning. So not to not to get too much into the weeds, but you did mention creating systems that are resistant themselves to attack. So what are some of the strategies that you would employ to do that? Sure. So a strategy that we, a specific strategy that we teach our students is called um, consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering. The overall arching concept is cyber-informed engineering, where we're teaching engineers to think about the fact that that equipment could be abused. Now, with consequence-driven, we start by looking at what are the events that you would not ever want to happen, right? So let me take one step back and say as well. So this is methodology that the Idaho National Laboratory kind of came up with um, and is encouraging folks to adopt. So you start out by thinking about the events that you cannot allow to happen. And that's a type of thinking that people aren't very good at, honestly. Engineers may be okay at that, but they're good at, at the details of what needs to be done, right? The structural integrity or the ladder logic in the controller. But we're not very good about thinking through systemic issues, right? So what if, maybe going back to our example with uh, solar winds, right? What if this vendor is compromised? What are the the cross-cutting attacks that could have significant consequences for us. We try to encourage our students to think through those events and then to prioritize those based on consequence, right? Then we say, okay, well, this is what we want to avoid. And what are the systems that allow or involved in that event? So the controllers, sensors, the motors, the valves, whatever those things are. We're looking at piping instrumentation diagrams. Now, that's an example of most cyber folks never read a piping and instrumentation diagram. So we're trying to get our students to think through both of those. And most technicians or engineers who do with industrial automation and control systems, they're not used to necessarily reading network diagrams. And so we want our students to be able to do both. And then we say, okay, let's imagine that I was a bad guy. And we help them understand, look, there are teams employed by governments, and in teams, we're talking dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who, under sponsorship from their government, are planning and preparing attacks and giving to their senior officers options for carrying out attacks. And it's not some kid in the basement, right? Now, in, in this case, uh, the Colonial Pipeline, of course, right, this seems to be, at least on first glance, a financially motivated attacker. But let's pretend that this is a team of well-resourced, structured, means trained adversaries, who you've got someone whose job it is to get access to the system. Someone else's job is to reverse engineer the code in that plant. 
Someone else's job is to create the exploit that matches that plan. And someone else's job is to get it in the door. And finally, someone else's job is to kick off the attack. So you've got a team with maybe five rules. So we're trying to help our students think through what is the adversary that you could be going up against? And then you say, okay, if they want to right, shut down a pipeline for five days, or they want to cause an explosion, how is it that we can remove the risk, take it all the way off the table so that that physical thing is no longer possible? Now, in some cases, we can't do that, but we want to help our students say, oh, yeah, I know what to do. I'm going to put in a physical failsafe. So something that's not, con not controlled with a computer. So let's say I've got a, a rupture disc where if pressure reaches a certain point, the disc is physically going to rupture and that's going to actuate a safety valve or a block valve or whatever that is so that it's impossible to cause that overpressure scenario. In cases where that might not be entirely possible, we're going to deploy a like an ice cube relay that's not smart, has no network capability. And if we hit, let's say, a high, high level in a container, that's going to actuate a, a valve and it's going to stop that tank from overflowing. So we're trying to introduce mostly mechanical systems to take the risk off the table wherever possible. And that's kind of the ultimate objective of this consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering approach that we're taking. So let's say you run a critical piece of infrastructure and you have a worst case scenario on your hand where you're locked out of your system, your, your system is in danger. What's the response to that? Well, the first thing is you have, to try, you have to understand what is the breadth of what's happening here. And we've seen cases where, let me just give you an example, right? So this is what happened in, the, in some of the Ukraine power outage attacks. And your computer, mouse starts moving on your computer. You're the process operator looking at a human machine interface. You, if, you're, if it's a, a live system, can move your mouse and turn things on or off. Mouse starts moving on its own. What do you do? Well, I could unplug my computer. Is that the right thing to do or not? Well, if you are logged in, right, you're just a terminal to a server. You're the operator. You don't have any clue that you're just a terminal, right? All you do is your job is click things. Unplugging the, the Ethernet cable is not going to help you. So we, we've got to think through what's the breadth of the issue in order to come up with the right response. I mean, in some dangerous situations, you may not want to send a technician onto the plant floor if you've got a, a chemical cloud or vapor that's occurred, right? You need to get a, right, this now we're talking instant response and, and, and different angle of Homeland Security, but you need to get the right visibility, if you will, of this gas cloud. And we've got to launch a drone to go check out where this thing is and where it's headed. So it's very challenging to wrap your minds around impact from the moment when someone first recognizes that something is wrong. And so I don't have a great answer for your question, um, I think that's an area that is going to need more exploration. It almost sounds like, as you said earlier, it's, a, it's an exercise in imagination because you have to think about what could possibly go wrong and when the worst case scenario happens, what are we going to do? Exactly. Yeah. So here at ACT-IAC, we focus a lot on partnerships between government and industry for better government. 
you know, you're sort of uniquely positioned within academia, which is neither of those. So if I could maybe sort of take you out of your comfort zone a little bit, how do you think government and industry can work together better to protect these critical infrastructures? Now, this is a challenging question. Um, you know, we have, of course, the, our executive order that, that recently came out. And if, right there in paragraph three, we've got this mention of ITOT. And that's a term that lots of cyber people aren't, you know, haven't been really familiar with in the past and kind of kind of interesting to see that language used. And so you have this kind of ages old challenge, which is, well, that infrastructure is owned by private industry. And what right does, in this case, federal government have to, to ask me to tell them about my system? And as we see, right, you know, like the number one, the, the number one heading there is information sharing. And even if I share information with you, <laughs> what good does that do? You can just send someone to help me with the problem. It's it's the right balance, I think, and education and training is an important part of that. I'm concerned when I see this term information sharing pushed as the solution. We need to make better decisions and information can help us do that. I think if we start with the things that we want to avoid, we can start by thinking about the things we want to avoid that might point us into a fruitful discussion. The other thing that strikes me when we look at that, and I haven't gone too far maybe in the executive order, but the other thing that strikes me a bit when we look at that executive order is that a lot of that information sharing is reactive. It's tell us when you were breached. Tell us about a vulnerability that got discovered or disclosed. Um, again, I don't, I don't think there are any easy answers for how to get proactive necessarily. I think it's worth pointing out that we want to reduce the incidents that, that, that we foresee, right? If we're, we want to drive down the possibility and I use the word possibility instead of probability, very intentional. So when you look at government, we look at industry, being able to talk about how do we avoid, government should be good at thinking through systemic big picture challenges. And industry should be good at understanding how their technology actually works. And that we should bring those two conversations together. And that's one thing that CCE tries to do. How do you try to do that? Yeah, I think it's a matter of getting people who normally don't talk to each other in the same room. Sometimes that's government people, but again, they don't control the systems. It's, hey, can I get the CEO to go visit the plant floor? Can I get the, and I'm going to tell you an example, another story here. So um, years ago, I was invited on a tour of a, of a facility and we we just want to see the facility, right? And of course, we're, we're cyber people, but this company who was a customer of ours said, yeah, come, we'll give you a tour of the facility. And so uh, I show up there with a couple of my analysts and we're excited to get hands on. Well, the CISO of this organization finds out about the tour. And so he meets us there as well. And this organization has a plant manager who's outsourced. Okay, so this guy specializes in running industrial facilities. 
and he doesn't even work for the company that owns the facility. So that's an extra piece of the puzzle. He's talking about bringing people together. So these two individuals, and we're in the room, uh, you know, go through our safety briefing before we walk out on the plant floor. And these two individuals have been like on a call together one time. And so now they're meeting, they're shaking hands. And that was kind of cool. Like, we're here just to get a tour and we brought you two people together. So we walked through the facility, right? And in the middle of the facility, this control room. So we walk in the control room and uh, you've got several operators sitting around just terminals and they're Microsoft Windows machines. And one of the analysts is with me. She says, hey, can you, she's talking to a process operator. Hey, can you, uh, control room operator, can you get to the internet from that computer? And he's like, wait, of course I can. I check the weather all the time. And the, uh, the CISO is like, he takes out his notebook and rapidly writing like, wait a minute, we got we to gotta think, about, think about that. And the plant, offer, the plant manager says, well, I think, there's a, I think there's a firewall that prevents incoming con- connections from initiating, you know, so it's a, it's a uh, stateful firewall. Of course, we're like, well, yeah, that's good, right? But still, have you thought through the risk? And it's getting those people who normally don't talk to each other around a table to discuss the issues. And that takes time. It's not going to be, it's going to be like, let's go to lunch and let's, and I can tell some other, some other stories, but it takes time for each side to recognize the other's perspective. Now imagine bringing the, you know, the United States government into the conversation. So the government's going to go, well, I can regulate, right. And we've been very resistant to regulation or, you know, discussions about liability. Well, these are, when you start opening the door to those conversations, people quickly clam up, right? So it's, hey, I'm not going to tell anyone anything. And that's kind of diametrically opposed to the discussion around information sharing. And so these issues are going to be challenging, but it's got to start with open dialogue. Something that I hope that we encourage at ACT-IAC. So if you're a plant manager out there, come check out ACT-IAC. Maybe you'll learn something get at the table with some other ideas and, uh, you know, sort of do that collaboration. We're almost out of time. So before I let you go, where do you hope that your program and sort of the state of security and infrastructure is in, let's say, 10 years, aside from just, you know, preventing attacks? Right. So as I look to the future, I would hope that we, let me just give you an example. Or wouldn't it be cool if on the professional engineering exam, there were some cybersecurity questions. I, mean, I think that'd be a fantastic indicator that this, that, that the digital, where we started, that this digital transformation, this information age and its implications for trust and for security is rippling through our system. That we're not merely making cybersecurity professionals who go out there and tell everyone else they're doing it wrong. <laughs> but that we're making engineers who are capable of thinking through the issues at the same time they're doing their regular jobs. I guess that's uh, my hope for a, for a 10-year perspective. Sounds like if we do that, we're, we're in good shape. Thank you so much for joining me. That was Sean McBride. Sean is the Industrial Cybersecurity Engineering Technology Coordinator at the Idaho State University Energy Systems Technology Education Center. Thank you, Colin. My pleasure. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ACT-IAC. 
More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.